the song, Great is Thy Faithfulness, because it's true. It's a, a brilliant reminder of the faithfulness of God for us. And I think that's a, an important reminder. Uh, Romans talks about the faithfulness of God, specifically in Romans chapter 3. And the context there in Romans 3 about God being faithful is the fact that he has promised to save us in Jesus. That if you place your faith in Jesus, you will be saved. And what he has promised, he will follow through with, right? Like Christ is going to come back and you and I who have placed our faith in Jesus will spend forever in the kingdom of God, free from pain, free from sorrow, free from misery. Like what God has promised, he will follow through. Like great is God's faithfulness. This morning, some of you need to understand and recognize the faithfulness of God for salvation for the very first time. And so I want to encourage you this morning to understand those words. Great is God's faithfulness, specifically his faithfulness in saving us in Jesus Christ. This morning, we're going to be in Acts chapter 20. Acts chapter 20, uh, continuing on our series through the third part of the book of Acts. We're looking at uh, calling to the nations, and so we're looking at what does it look like to be a church that is that is called out, that is sent out to the nations to go take the gospel to our community and around the world. What does it look like uh, as we do that? And so we're going to continue that series this morning here, Acts chapter 20, beginning in verse 1. Acts chapter 20, beginning in verse 1. This is what it says. After the uproar ceased, Paul sent for the disciples, and after encouraging them, he said farewell and departed for Macedonia. When he had gone through those regions and had given them much encouragement, he came to Greece. There he spent three months, and when a plot was made against him by the Jews, as he was about to set sail for Syria, he decided to return through Macedonia. Sopater, the Berean, son of Pyrrhus, accompanied him, and of the Thessalonians, Aristarchus and Secundus, Gaius of Derby and Timothy, and the Asians, Tychicus and Trophimus. These went on ahead and were waiting for us at Troas, but we sailed away from Philippi after the days of unleavened bread. And in five days we came to them at Troas, where we stayed for seven days. On the first day of the week, when we were gathered together to break bread, Paul talked with them, intending to depart on the next day, and he prolonged his speech until midnight. There were many lamps in the upper room where we were gathered. And a young man named Eutychus, sitting at the window, sank into a deep sleep as Paul talked still longer, and being overcome by sleep, he fell down from the third-story window and was taken up dead. But Paul went down and bent over him, and taking him in his arms, he said, Do not be alarmed, for his life is in him. Verse 11, When Paul had gone up and had broken bread and eaten, he conversed with them a long while, until daybreak, and so departed. And they took the youth away alive, and were not a little comforted. But going ahead to the ship, we set sail for Asos, intending to take Paul aboard there, for so he had arranged, intending himself to go by land. When he met us at Asos, we took him on board and went to Mytilene, and sailing from there, we came the following day opposite Chios. The next day, we touched at Samos, and the next day after that, we went to Miletus, for Paul had decided to sail past Ephesus so that he might not have to spend time in Asia, for he was hastening to be at Jerusalem, if possible, on the day of Pentecost. Let me pray for us. We'll get into the word this morning. Heavenly Father, I thank you for the wonderful opportunity to gather together to worship you. That we have the privilege of coming together uh, every single week 
gathering here to, to sing praises to your name, to be reminded of these, these glorious gospel truths, and to remind one another of these glorious gospel truths. And God, that we can gather together and open up your word and talk about what it means for our lives. So God, I pray this morning as we open up your word, God, I pray that you would speak to every single one of us. God, that your word would go forth and that you would, you would reach our hearts and our minds. Father, I pray that we would have ears that are ready to listen to you, Father, that ears that are, are ready to hear what you're saying to us. And God, I pray we would have hearts that are ready to apply it, God, that we would leave here better. We would leave here different because of our time in your word this morning. Father, we love you and praise you. And it's in the name of Jesus that we pray. Amen. Now, how many of you know a guy or know someone who is uh, really bad about starting things but not finishing them? Right, like they can, they can, they have, they start a project with this, this dream, this vision, this all this ambition, all of this excitement, and they get going, and they they get the ball rolling, and they start making some groundwork, and then and then they have to start solving some problems, and and some logistical details have to get figured out, and so then the the enthusiasm begins to wane, and so they spend less and less time on the project, and eventually just ditch it all together and toss it back with a, a heap of other half-finished projects, right, or a to-do list that, that it keeps growing and never gets checked off, right? Some of you wives are like, yeah, that's my husband. He's right here. You should see our garage. It's been half-cleaned for the last six years, right? Um, my, my friend growing up, uh, his dad is not a great example of this because he, he always finished the jobs that he started, but, but he was a big DIY guy. And so I distinctly remember uh, f- going over to my friend's house and being unable to use the upstairs bathroom for two years because it was under construction, right? Like he had torn it up and was putting it back together for two years. And then I didn't use it for another year after that just in case he wasn't done, right? Like I didn't want to go in there and use it and, and find out later the toilet wasn't working. And so I was like, you know, I can go downstairs. Like that's, I can figure that out. Uh, and so... It, we are all familiar with the, the process of, of half-finished jobs, right? Starting something and not quite getting there. But that's, ne- that's never the goal, right? Nobody starts out a project to do it halfway, right? Nobody heads out on a trip and says, you know, if we get three-quarters of the way there, that's enough, you know? Like, like nobody demolishes their kitchen and says, if we just do the island, we don't really need the rest. Like, we're all right. Like, you, we all start out with the, the goal of 100% completion, right? Anything less is, is missing the mark. But as Christians and as churches, we have a goal. We have a, a mission that Christ has sent us out on. It's the mission that we've been talking about at the third part of the book of Acts, and it's the same mission that was given to the disciples in Matthew chapter 28. Go, therefore, into all the nations, baptizing them, uh, making, go, therefore, and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit, and teaching them to observe that all that I've commanded you. So we have a mission, we have a goal of going out into our community and across the world and making disciples. That is the goal, that is the mission that Christ has sent his church out on. But the problem is so many Christians and so many churches have narrowed the goalpost, have brought it, the goalpost in and are, are trying to accomplish something that is, is only half of the job. And they're celebrating a win after completing half the job and leaving the rest of the job unfinished. What I mean is that God has given us the mission of making disciples. And so many Christians and so many churches instead have decided to make it their goal to generate decisions. Instead of making disciples, we want to create converts. 
We want to get them across the finish line of, of checking a box or walking an aisle or saying a prayer or getting baptized. Like we want to get them across that finish line. And as soon as we get them there, we're done. We have accomplished the mission. But the reality is that that is moving the goalpost in and that is a half-finished work. Our goal, our mission is to make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, teaching them to observe all that I've commanded you. When we set our goal as generating decisions or creating, uh, creating converts, when that becomes the goal, that is a half-finished work. But not Paul. Right? Paul knew the goal. Paul knew the mission. And, and what we've seen from Paul up to this point in the book of Acts is he has gone out and he has planted churches. He has gone and proclaimed the gospel. He has seen numerous people come to know Jesus. He has, he has planted churches all across uh, the, the uh, Roman Empire. And they, he, they've had these incredible uh, moments of revival, these incredible moments of, of movements of God in all these different cities that he's come across. Uh, but we see in chapter 20, verse 1, that uh, that Paul understood the mission was more than just generating decisions. He understood that the mission was more than, than creating disciples. In Acts chapter 20, Paul wants to get to Jerusalem. It's kind of his end goal. He wants, to, he wants to leave. He's in the city of Ephesus. He wants to leave Ephesus and make its way to Jerusalem. That's his plan. But instead, if we could put the, the map up here, that's not what he actually does. I know there's a lot of uh, cities because we're going to travel quite a bit today. Um, but Paul is in Ephesus. You can see it there kind of in the middle of your screen. Uh, it's right off the coast of what is modern-day Turkey. Paul is in Ephesus. He wants to get to Jerusalem. The direct route, like the fastest way, is just to go south. You can see Jerusalem there at the bottom of the map, on the bottom right side. It, the fastest way is just to sail down. That's not what Paul does. Look with me in verse 1 of chapter 20. After the uproar ceased, remember last week there was this big riot in the city of Ephesus. So once that dies down, Paul sent for the disciples, and after encouraging them, he said farewell and departed for Macedonia. Paul wants to get to Jerusalem. That's the bottom right side of the screen. But Paul decides to take a trip to Macedonia. That is the top left. <laughs> so <laughs> he goes the exact opposite direction to go up to Macedonia, and he takes this trip up to Macedonia, he goes through Troas. Macedonia, that's the region that Paul has already been. There's a city, uh, cities there like Philippi and Thessalonica. He has planted churches there, and so he decides to leave Ephesus. He encourages the Christians there, and he, takes, he travels north to go up to Macedonia to go proclaim uh, the gospel and to encourage the Christians there. Verse 2, when he had gone through those regions and had given them much encouragement, he came to Greece. So he moves down from Macedonia down into what is modern-day Greece, there at the bottom, that blue part right there. And he goes to other cities where he's already planted churches, ch cities like Corinth. And he's going down and he's retracing the steps that he's already traced. Like he's going down, he's, all, he's going to places he's already gone to. And it, like if you're taking a trip to Jerusalem, this is not the route. Right? Like if you're trying to go to Jerusalem from Ephesus, this is the worst way you could possibly get there. And you can see he might be trying to make this loop, right? This extended loop where he would leave from uh, Greece and head over to Jerusalem. But, but either way, it's a, it's a way out of the way, this big loop. Why would Paul spend so long on this journey, going way out of the way on his, uh, on his journey to Jerusalem? I mean, we see 
and, and beginning of verse 3, in Gre- he spent three months in Greece. And if we calculate how long it would have taken him uh, to travel up to Troas, over to Macedonia, down to Greece, that traveling, the time he spent in those cities, this is probably at least a year of Paul traveling in extra time. <laughs> like, why would Paul spend all of that time uh, adding to his journey? Like, a year of his ministry, a year of extra journey. Why would he do that? We, Paul, uh, Luke tells us in verse 1 and in verse 2. Verse 1, Paul got together the Christians who were at Ephesus, and he encouraged them. In verse 2, Paul made his way to Macedonia and had given the Christians there much encouragement. Paul went out of his way to retrace his steps, to go back to Macedonia, to go back to Greece, to go back to all of these cities that he's already planted churches in, all of these cities where Christians already existed. He went out of his way to go back to those churches so that he could go and encourage them. So that he could go, some of your Bibles may say exhort them. So he could go teach them and train them and lead them. This is Paul loving those churches. Because if Paul's mission was just to go generate decisions and create uh, converts, if his goal was just to, to get people to check a box and to plant a church in a city and move on, he's already done that. Right? He's already planted churches in all of these cities. He's already reached them with the gospel. He's already started uh, Christian ministries there. But Paul loved the Christians and the churches enough to go way out of his way to go reach them again, to go encourage them and, and equip them and train them for ministry. Because he knew the goal was to make disciples, not to create converts. We continue. In verse 3, after spending three months in Greece, a plot was made against him by the Jews as he was about to set sail for Syria. That's that kind of big loop that I was talking about, his original plan, that big loop. But they, uh, they find out that there's a plot against his life as he's about to set sail for Syria. So he decided to return through Macedonia. So he just turns around and goes back the direction he came. So this is going to add quite a bit of extra time again, uh, but this time it's because there's an attempt on his life. What's fascinating to me about this story is that that is all that we get about this attempt on Paul's life. Right? That's the only, like, if, if it were you or I in this situation, if, if one of us had uh, our life threatened on our journey from Greece to Syria, right, that would be the story, right? Like, we talk about, well, I went to Macedonia, I went to Greece, and then this group of people tried to kill me. Like, here's, here's how I got out of it, here's how I learned about it, right? That would be the story. Not an axe, not for Paul, not for Luke. This isn't a story about how Paul escaped a threat on his life. The only reason Luke includes it here is just an explanation for why Paul turned around. It's just a blip on his travel itinerary. Like, yep, this is where they tried to kill me. And he turns around and goes the opposite direction. That's the only reason that that's included in this story, because that's not what's important. That's not what Luke is trying to convey. Some some story of overcoming opposition, what Luke is trying to convey is that Paul loved the Christians in these churches. He had a a heart and a care for these churches. And so he is there proclaiming the gospel. He's there encouraging and equipping the saints. And when there's a threat made on his life, he says, all right, I'll just go back where I came. I'll just continue encouraging and equipping those churches along the way. He turns around. Verse 4. Sobater, the Berean, son of Pyrrhus, accompanied him. And of the Thessalonians, Aristarchus and Secundus, Gaius of Derbe and Timothy, and the Asians, Tychicus and Trophimus. So Paul lists this 
uh, this long list of names, several, group, uh, several people that are included in, in Paul's ministry. Now, if you're reading this on your own, probably part of your, your Bible study, the temptation usually is just to kind of skip past this verse, right? And Paul had these names, and then you just keep going, right? Because either we can't pronounce them or, um, or we find it unimportant. The reason that, Paul, that Luke includes all of these names is probably not to show us that Paul is such a team player, or that his leadership style was collaborative leadership. Like those are probably true things that we can see from the text, but, but that's not why Paul included these, or why Luke included these in Acts. The reason that Luke includes these names is the same reason why you see that there are locations attached to every single name. Sopater was a Berean. Uh, Aristarchus and Secundus were from the city of Thessalonica. Gaius was from the city of Derby. Timothy was from the city of Ephesus. We already know that from earlier in Acts. And Tychicus and Trophimus were from other cities in the region of Asia. So this is a team of people from all over the Roman Empire, from places where Paul had already planted churches all across the Mediterranean basin. Like, like Paul had already been here, and he had brought together this team of people from all over his travels. This is, again, a reference to how much Paul loves and cares for the churches that he's planted, that he has brought together a team of people from all over these churches to train them and equip them and send them back for ministry. Like Paul loves these churches and these Christians enough to train up leaders and to disciple them, bring them up in his ministry, allow them to accompany him, and then send them back. We find out later uh, in, in the Bible, in books of First and Second Timothy, that Paul has trained up Timothy, and he has sent Timothy back to pastor the church at Ephesus. We find out in the book of Titus that Paul has raised up a guy named Titus, and he has sent him to the island of Crete to go train and equip the churches there. This is Paul loving and caring for these churches enough that he, everywhere he goes, he is recognizing leaders and he's bringing them along with him and he's training them up in his ministry so that he can send them back to pastor those churches as well. Paul understands the mission. He loves and cares for these churches. Verse 5, this group of leaders, they went on ahead and were waiting for us at Troas. You'll notice there, uh, Luke uses the word us here. So in addition to these leaders, Luke is probably also with Paul, along with who knows how many people. Uh, but those leaders, they go on ahead while Paul and Luke and who knows who else, uh, they're, they're staying in Philippi. Verse 6, we sailed away from Philippi after the days of unleavened bread. And in five days, we came to them at Troas, where we stayed for seven days. So they made it up kind of to the tip of Macedonia. They're about to head back to Troas. Uh, and they send the team on ahead. And again, Luke includes this little detail that Paul and Luke and who knows how el- uh, who else, they stayed in Philippi for, for a little bit longer. Why would Luke tell us that? Why does it matter that, th- that, they, that Paul sent this team on ahead and, and Paul and Luke stayed behind in Philippi? It's because, again, Paul is sitting there in the city of Philippi with a church that he helped to start, and he is encouraging them and loving them and equipping them before he leaves. Paul loves these churches. Paul loves these Christians. They head on to Troas. It takes about five days to get there, seven uh, seven days. They, They stay a week in Troas. Skip down to verse 13. Going ahead to the ship, we set sail to Asos, intending to take Paul aboard there, for so he had arranged, intending himself to go by land. So Troas is up there. 
there's just a little tip of land. Uh, and so the team sails around that tip of land. Paul says, I'm just going to walk and go straight south. The reason we don't really know why Paul decided to walk instead of take the boat, it could have been for safety, could have been for other things, but we know Paul. <laughs> and we've seen Paul throughout the book of Acts. So you know what Paul was doing on his trip down from Troas to Asos? As he walked down and he was proclaiming the gospel to the people that he came across, and he was encouraging and, and equipping any Christians that he encountered. He goes on land. They pick him up at Asos, verse 14. And they took him on board and they went to Mytilene, Selling from there, they came opposite Chios. Next day, they touched at Samos, and after that, to Miletus. So this is all those little stops you can see on the arrows. They're just making their way down the coast on their way to Jerusalem. And again, every time they stop, they're not really spending a lot of time in these stops. They're on their, they're, they have a deadline. They're trying to get to Jerusalem. But, but every time they stop, Paul is encouraging and loving and equipping the Christians and the saints at every location. This is what I think Luke is teaching us in this passage. This, this passage that we can easily skip over because it's just a list of cities and, and a, a travel itinerary uh, for Paul. But this is what I think Luke is teaching us in this passage. If you take notes, I encourage you to write this down. A church that is taking the gospel to the nations must love people more than they love statistics. A church that carries the gospel out into the community and out into the world has to love people, has to want to make disciples more than they love the, the measurable things. Right? So many of us as Christians and so many churches have, have adopted as the goal improving our statistics. We, wanna, we want to generate decisions. We want to create uh, converts. We want to get people to check boxes and get baptized. We want to get them across that finish line because it's measurable. And we've set that as the goal. And instead of loving people, our goal is to get more statistics. Mega churches uh, usually get a lot of flack for this. I'm not going to single them out. Because this is across the board. There are small churches, like churches of 50, churches of, of 200 and 800 and 5,000 across the board. There are churches who love statistics more than they love people. Like they, the thing that the Christians in those churches are infatuated with, the thing that the, the leaders are obsessed with is how many people they have in attendance and, and what, how, what the size of their budget is and, and how many decisions they had the week before and how many baptisms they had the year before. Those are all great things to count. We keep track of attendance and, and, uh, and budgets and, and decisions and baptisms. Like we keep track of those things and we celebrate those things because those are good things. But th so many churches have adopted that as the goal. And instead of loving people, we end up loving statistics. We end up accomplishing half of the job. <laughs> I've encountered so many Christians went to a church and they, they, they were uh, loved by the Christians there. They were, they were brought in. They were encouraged to put their faith in Jesus. And then the, that person put their faith in Jesus and they were baptized. And then it's like they were, they were abandoned by the church because that was, you know, they'd accomplished their project. <laughs> like on to the next person. This person's in, on to the next person. And then that person ends up leaving the church, feeling burned, feeling... Uh, unwelcomed, feeling unwanted, ends up leaving the church and dropping out. I've, I've seen it happen time and time again when we have set up as the goalpost 
generating, generating decisions, making disciples, these, uh, uh, generating decisions, creating converts, these, these statistical things, when that becomes the goal, we are doing the job halfway. We have to love people more than we love those statistics. We have to have a genuine care and passion for people, and that has to motivate our evangelism. Not a desire to have a bigger church or a desire to get more people across that line. Think of Paul. I mean, you want a guy with the measurables, right? You want a guy with the statistics? Paul's the guy. He planted so many churches across the Mediterranean basin, like across the, uh, just throughout the Roman Empire. Like we saw on the map all of those cities that Paul was traveling to. He had helped plant churches there. There were Christians in those cities because Paul proclaimed the gospel to that city and people got saved. Revivals have broken out under Paul's ministry at numerous cities and, and churches were being planted from the churches that he planted. Like Paul had all of the measurables. On top of that, we, Paul wrote a massive chunk of our New Testament. Like Paul had every statistic that we would want, every measurable that we could desire. But Paul's goal wasn't just to create a bunch of churches. Paul's goal wasn't just to, just to create a bunch of converts and then move on to the next city. We saw in this passage that Paul doubled back because he loved the people there. He had a desire for those people to know God, to know God's word and to, to love God more, to walk according to to his purposes. Like he loved those people more than he loved any statistics. In the middle of this travel narrative, Luke gives us a story. What I think Luke is doing is he, he zooms in on one of the cities to, to show us a little bit because it's a notable story. It's one of my favorites in the Bible, but he zooms in a little bit to show us uh, what it looks like for Paul to love the Christians in these churches. What it looked like to, to pour into people here in these churches. And we're going to see two things in this, in this text quickly. Two ways uh, that, uh, that, two things that loving Christians look like. Two things that loving people looks like. So the first thing that we see in the text is that loving people looks like discipling them through Scripture. Loving people looks like discipling them through Scripture. Look with me in verse 7. So this is zooming in when they're at the city of Troas for a week. On the first day of the week, when we gathered together to break bread, Paul talked with them intending to depart the next day and prolonged his speech until midnight. Look with me again in verse 11. When Paul had gone up and had broken bread and eaten, he conversed with them a long while until daybreak and so departed. So Paul is he's in the city of Troas. He's about to leave. And he gathers the church together on Sunday as they normally gather. And they, they, they come together and Paul is preaching to them for, for hours on end. Like he keeps talking all the way till midnight and then some crazy events happen and they, they get resolved. And then he goes back up and he keeps preaching and talking to them until daybreak. And this is hours and hours and hours and hours of time in the word of God. But Paul loved the church enough to sit down and to talk to them from Scripture, to encourage them and equip them. If you were wondering what it looks like to love people well, it means discipling them through Scripture. And that may be surprising to you that that's the first thing that comes up. Right? When we think of loving people well, we probably think of like benevolence-type ministries. 
Like we want to we want to meet people's needs. We want to we want to care for them in this way or that way. We want to be kind and generous to them. Like the Bible talks about all of those things. Those are all good things. They are good ways to love people well. But the thing that we see Paul doing more than anything else is opening up scripture and teaching it to the people that he comes into contact with. He loved the church enough to open up the word of God and to discuss it with the church. Because the thing that the church needs the most is to hear from God, to understand what God's word says. God has revealed himself to us from scripture and his word has power. And so what the church needs more than anything else is to know what the word of God says and to apply those scriptures to our lives. So Paul, knowing he had a limited time, he didn't start a benevolence ministry. He didn't start a widow's ministry or bereavement ministry. He didn't start any of those things, although those are all good things. Paul, with his limited time, he opened up the Bible and said, I'm leaving tomorrow. We've got to get this to you. I have to teach you what this says. So if you want to love people well, we need to disciple people through Scripture. It's amazing to me that the, these Christians would sit through a sermon, right, that is several hours long, like, like from the afternoon till the next morning, right? Like they, they're sitting through this sermon several hours long. I'm a preacher. I don't want to do that. Like it's, it's a, 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 seems like a really boring time, but they knew that they need the word of God. And I think as Christians, the, especially as American Christians, one of the greatest knocks on us is that we have the Word of God in our language, accessible to every single one of us on a daily basis, and we ignore it. We don't open it up. We don't read it. We don't try to understand what it says for our lives. These people were willing to sit all night to know the word of God, and Paul was willing to talk all night to pour into these people because they need scripture. And we have the scriptures in our language accessible to us 24-7, and we ignore it every single week until we come together on Sunday and let somebody else talk about it for a little bit. Even before we can disciple people through Scripture, which is what we need to do if we love them, the first thing we need to do is open up the Scriptures for ourselves and know what it says. We cannot disciple one another in the Word of God. We cannot pour into one another with Scripture if we ignore this on a weekly basis. We do not get into it. We do not know what it says. We need to open the Scriptures and apply it to our lives. And when we do that, we can turn around and love one another enough to begin to speak scripture to each other, to encourage each other through the word of God, to disciple each other from scripture so that collectively as a church, we understand what the word of God says, we understand what it means, and we apply it to our lives. Like that is moving the goalpost back to what the Bible says. Matthew 28, make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. We get that. We're like, all right, we're going to get them in the water. We're going to check off the box. We're going to get them to say a prayer. We're going to generate the decision. But what's the next thing it says? Teaching them to observe all that I've commanded you. It's moving the goalpost back and saying this person needs to know and love the Lord. So we need to disciple people through Scripture. The second thing that, that we do when we love people, loving people, looks like discipling, discipling through Scripture, and it looks like revealing God's glory. Look with me in verse 8. 
There were many lamps in the upper room where they were gathered, and a young man named Eutychus, sitting at the window, sank into a deep sleep as Paul talked still longer. Uh, I love this passage. It's one of my favorites in Scripture because the story is extremely relatable, right? Like, I, I can look out and see some of you uh, that if you were if you were in this story, you would also be like Eutychus. Like, if you were sitting on a windowsill right now, watch out, right? People fall asleep. And I, it's also encouraging for me as a pastor, like, if Paul had people fall asleep in his sermons, then I can't be in that bad, right? I'm in good company. Uh, but this guy named Eutychus, he's a young man uh, that... that that uh, moniker means he probably was between 8 and 14 years old. He's sitting on a windowsill. Paul's talking till midnight, so understandably, gets a little tired, falls asleep. Uh, but being overcome by sleep, he fell down from the third story and was taken up dead. Uh, so th- talk about a mood change in the middle of a sermon. Right, Paul's dis- he's, he's talking in Scripture, and he's discipling them from the Word of God, and they're, they're somewhat on the edge of their seats. I don't know, some are probably more uh, awake than others, but they're, they're listening, trying to, to bring it, trying to get it, trying to understand it, trying to apply it, and then, and then uh, th- they're on the edge of their seats, and all of a sudden, this guy falls down a window and dies. Like, that changes the entire mood of the entire service, because if you're Paul now, you're like, great, now the only thing they're going to talk about is this guy. Like they're not going to remember anything I just said. Uh, but they, Eutychus falls down a window and dies, but Paul goes down in verse 10. And he bends over him, and taking him in his arms, he said, Do not be alarmed, for his life is in him. So again, talk about another mood shift. <laughs> like they were listening to the word of God and then entirely depressed because Eutychus died and then extremely excited because Paul brought him back to life. His life is still in him. Verse 11. When Paul had gone up and broken bread and eaten, he conversed with them a long while until daybreak and so departed. Verse 11 is one of my favorites because he just goes back upstairs like nothing happened. They're like, all right, let's just break some bread and talk for a few more hours till the daybreak. And uh, it just continues like nothing happened. Verse 12, they took the youth away alive and were not a little comforted. That's the key right there. They were not a little comforted. They were extremely comforted. What Paul did in that moment is he revealed a glimpse of the power and the glory of God to the, to the Christians there at Troas. They're, they're listening to Paul. They're listening to the word of God. They're, they're understanding what Paul is teaching them. And then, and then all of a sudden, Paul brings this guy back to life by the power of God. Like You want to know what's comforting is knowing that we serve a God who has the power to bring someone back to life. He revealed just a glimpse of the power of God, just a glimpse of the glory of God to the Christians there at Troas. Now, you and I are probably not going to be in a position to raise people to life on a regular basis. Paul wasn't in a position to raise people to life on a regular basis. It'd be a little weird if everywhere Paul preached, people were falling out of windows. Like, that would be a cause for an investigation. But he, he wasn't. This is a one-time thing, but it's recorded in Scripture because what Paul is doing at Troas, he did everywhere that he encouraged and equipped the Christians, every city that he went to. But he did it in less noteworthy ways. But he would go to these cities, and from the Word of God and from his exhortations, he would reveal back the curtain a little bit and show people people the glory of God. He would, he would lift these Christians' eyes up, and he would peel back the curtain and let people see the God that they serve. He would, he would pour into them and love them enough to show them the glimpses of the God that we worship. Like we, if we're going to love people well, we don't just want them to check a box, say a prayer, and get baptized. We want them to see and behold the glory of God. 
We want them to to understand the beauty of Christ Jesus and, and the gospel that he proclaims. The salvation that comes from Christ. And we want people to understand that we serve a God who is more powerful than anything on earth. We want to peel back the curtain and show people the immense, immeasurable love of God that we serve a God who loves us enough that he would send his son Jesus to die for us. And we want to peel back the curtain and show people that the love that God has for us is limitless and it is unconditional. So when we feel like we are not deserving of the love of God, we're not, but God still loves us anyways. We want to peel back that curtain and show just how loving God is. We want to peel back the curtain and show just how gracious God is, like let people know that we are swimming in in an ocean of the grace of God and that that grace is, is more than enough to cover over anything and everything that we've ever done. And it it is so much grace that we are never going to reach the edges of it. We are never going to to broach it. Like we're never going to come right up to the edge of it and wonder whether or not God's grace is enough for the next time. God's grace is so great that that it covers over everything. And we want to peel back the curtain and show people the glory of God. We We need to love people enough that our goal is not just to get them to check a box, but so that they can see and know the God who created them and loves them and wants them to have a relationship with him. We we want to peel back the curtain and show a God who who has enough wisdom and power and love to to show and, 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 and bring about this glorious good news of salvation in Jesus. We need to love people enough to disciple them through the word of God to reveal to them the glory of God this morning. There's some of you here that, that I love you enough to tell you that, that what you need is to know Jesus. What you need is to find salvation in Jesus Christ. What you need is, now that we're kind of peeling back the curtain, what you need is to know that there's a God who loves you and who cares about you and who wants a relationship with you. I don't care if you've been in church your entire life or if this is the first time you've been in church in 50 years. Right? I don't care if you were baptized, if you checked off a box, if you walked down an aisle, if you said a prayer. I don't care if you've done any of those things. You know this morning if you have a relationship with God. You know this morning if you've experienced the love and the kindness and the grace and the peace that comes from our Father. And if you do not know that this morning, if you've not experienced the love and the grace of God, if you've never encountered the risen Savior, then this morning what I'm imploring you to do is to know that God loves you and to place your faith in Jesus to receive the salvation that comes from Christ. In just a second, I'm going to pray, and then we're going to sing. As we sing, if that's you this morning, and you want to place your faith in Jesus for the very first time, I'm going to be standing right here. I would love for you to come forward so I could pray with you, and then we have someone who would love to talk with you more about what it means to follow Jesus. If walking to the front is uncomfortable for you, we'll have people in the back also who would love to talk with you more about what it means to follow Jesus. I love you enough to tell you there's a God who loves you. You know, has made a way to die, uh, made a way to, to, to forgive your sins through Jesus Christ. Let me pray. Heavenly Father, we thank you that your word has, has revealed this glorious good news of the gospel to us. God, that, that by your word we know that there is eternal life available through Jesus. 
And God, I thank you that you have given us these, these glimpses into your character, into your holiness, God, that you're a God of peace, God, that you are a God of unending joy, that you are a God of love, that you're a God who gives life, that you are a God who, who creates and, and is, is creative, that you are a God who, who cares about every single one of us. God, I thank you that your word reveals these little glimpses of your character, God, that we can peer back behind the curtain and see just how glorious and mighty you are, God. I pray that we as a church would have it as our goal, that we would long for people to see that and behold your glory. God, I pray that we would long to, to proclaim your word to the people around us, to go take the gospel to our city and around the world, but not just because we want to check off boxes, not just because we want to have uh, these measurable statistics, but because we love people enough to tell them that there's a God who loves them. Father, I pray this morning, if there's anyone here, those who are here who do not know you, who do not have a relationship with you, Father, who have never held your glory and experienced your peace. God, I pray this morning would be the morning when they experience salvation. This morning would be the morning where they place their faith in Jesus. God, I pray for boldness and a willingness to step out from their seat and to go where they need to go to learn more about you and to place their faith in Jesus. Lord, I love you. I praise you. And it's in the precious holy name of Jesus that we pray. Amen.